Thank you, guys and ladies. I should get that right one, one right on this on this passage, huh? Um, I need some help here as we start. And 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 uh, first of all, if you'd like to follow along as I quote various parts of this passage on your pew Bibles, it's page nine fifty-two. But the help I need is for those of you who've heard the line, here's looking at you, kid, to raise your hands. How many of you know that one? Okay, now how many of you have seen the movie Casablanca? A good bit less. That, that line comes from the movie Casablanca. I, I watched it for the first time a couple weeks ago, and I was really surprised at how many lines I've, I've heard. It's quite a well-known movie. It, considered, I think, the second best movie of all time in terms of its influence on, on film. Uh, but my wife, Amin, and I thought, well, let's, let's watch it. We don't have anything better to do. There's only this two-month-old crying baby and need a break from, from her from time to time. So we watched it and, and really enjoyed it. And say, despite its age, it's, it's worth seeing. Its influence is great. You'll, you'll recognize a lot of things. Uh, but one thing that I'm glad its influence is... is not so strong on is its view of men and women, their relationships together. Um, I, I like to illustrate this by, by acting out a scene from it. The main character here, main characters, are Ilsa, played by Ingrid Bergman. She's the, uh, the lead of the movie. And Rick, played by Humphrey Bogart. Right now, this is the kind of height of the relational tension in the movie, and our heroine has her shoulder on our hero's uh, has her head on her hero's shoulder, some tears in her eyes. I'm getting character. I can't fight it anymore. I ran away from you once. I can't do it again. Oh, I don't know what's right any longer. You'll have to think for us, for both of us, all of us. <laughs> all right, I will. Here's looking at you, kid. I wish I didn't love you so much. Okay. <laughs> Fellas, do you think that line, here's looking at you, kid, is uh, something you might pull out on your next date? And uh, don't raise your hands on this one. <laughs> no, okay. That, was, that movie came out in 1942. That's 67 years old. That's a little view of what a male-female relationship looked like 67 years ago. Our text, almost 2,000 years ago, the, uh, the relationship we see here when it talks about husbands and wives is nothing like what we know the relationship to be today of husbands and wives. We have four distinct relationships beyond, uh, besides husbands and wives, fathers and sons, masters and servants, and Christ and his church. And of these four, the only one that, that makes any, that, that we should be connecting to at all in terms of what we experience in our culture is Christ and his church. If we want to understand this passage as Paul meant it to be understood, we should clear our minds of whatever images we have of those other three relationships. Simply put, the Greek and Roman culture does not abide by the reality of those relationships we know today. Husbands and wives going out to, on a date to spend quality time together? Yeah, that didn't happen. Dad playing catch with a junior in the front yard? 
Your, uh, your local toga-wearing patriarch will have no clue what that's about. And as many of you know, slavery that we knew 150 years ago here in the States uh, was, was far more oppressive than slavery then. So exhale out whatever those images are you have, and, and let's look at this text. As we look at these verses from Ephesians, note that in the three earthly relationships, the same kind of person is present. We have a husband, father, and a master. Okay? Paul is talking about the same person with all three of those relationships. These are just different facets of, of uh, this person's world. The Latin term for this person is the pater familia. Okay? We could also use a term like master of the household. I'll be using the patron. And perhaps you're familiar with the term godfather from the movie. That wouldn't be too far off. Now, while the mob family and the Godfather movies might work. I'd like to give you a different example of, of what kind of household we're talking about. This comes from the non-Western world. Part of the reason we have to go to the non-Western world is because of the enlightenment, the I think, therefore I am, this, this sense of individualism. That didn't happen back in Greco-Roman culture, and to some parts of the world it still hasn't really happened. So uh, let's go to the Arab world. My wife is, is half Arabic. My, my father-in-law, who passed away last year, comes from Yemen. He was born and raised in Yemen, and then Saudi Arabia, and then ended up in his adult life in Houston. Uh, and my wife tells the story often of the Arabs taking over the house. Now, this would happen when Mr. Baroom, who is a very, very wealthy Saudi business person, would, would come and he would bring his entourage with them. And there's about 30 people. And my father-in-law, being the good host that he is, would basically stop what he was doing and, and host these people for weeks on end as Mr. Baroom came for came to Houston for its hospitals. Now, of these 30, it included uh, his, his wives, and there's multiple of them. Now, in Arab culture, you have one wife, and then she sort of retires, and you go for another wife, and, and she gets through her childbearing years and retires, and you go for another one. And so as these wives are, are done, they take on some other roles in the house. All of Mr. Broom's children would come with him. No child can leave the household until the, the father has passed on, no son rather, can leave the household until the father has passed on, and then the son can kind of create uh, his own household. And there would be various hangers-on who are trying to um, you know, win favor with Mr. Baroom. My, my father-in-law was uh, a person who would also participate in this culture of favors. He would never take any money for, for hosting the, the Arabs for several weeks on end, thinking that this favor will come in handy down the road when he might need a favor. Now, Paul is talking to the Mr. Barooms of Greco-Roman society. These are the people who ruled their domestic lives from, from on high. They're constantly engaged in trying to climb up the social ladder of the culture through favors, the, the currency of favors. And the culture was so stratified, so stratified that each man at every meal knew where he stood. There was a seat for the, the, the highest person in the room, and the person could recline, and maybe a couple other people could recline, and then kind of progressively, as you got away from that person, you were, you were leveled out in terms of where you were in society. I do say men here on purpose because women could not eat with, with the men. There was no social function to eating there. And all of this stratif stratification of society underlies Paul's thoughts in this passage. 
Remember that the heart of the book of Ephesians, and we've been looking at it this whole semester, is the call for unity in the body of believers. But if some men won't eat with women or lesser men for fear of the loss of their social status, how can the body of believers be united? How can they eat at the communion table? Breaking bread together in remembrance of Christ was then, and it still is today, the most important repetitive act we can do to symbolize our faith. To refuse to break bread with somebody then was to serve the master of social advancement before serving God. And Paul here is seeking to amend this problem. He's seeking to redeem these relationships so that that can happen, so that unity can happen. Now, as we look closely at how Paul addresses this culture of patronage, note that he's not abolishing the power dynamic, okay? There's always this power dynamic, husbands, wives, masters, slaves, father, children. He's not abolishing that, but he seeks to bring Christ within that. And we look to verse 521 first in this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's nothing that comes after this that somehow abends this idea. This is the idea that rules. This is the idea that, Paul's per- that serves Paul's purpose of getting Christ's body to be united. This is the idea that causes Paul to say later, there is no Jew, no Greek, no male, nor female, nor slave, nor free. We are all one in Christ. This culture of patronage is, is over. We can sit at the table together and break bread to remember Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now that said, let's first take a look at two of these relationships, two sets. Slaves and masters, children and, and fathers. These uh, two sets don't get near as much attention as wives and husbands, but it's worth highlighting how Paul relates all four roles to God. To children, he quotes the Ten Commandments. He uh, highlights this is for the child's ultimate good. For fathers, again, think the high and mighty patrons here. They are not to anger their children, but raise them up to know the Lord. Again, this honored the father's place of power over his children, but all of a sudden it redeemed the relationship by pointing it towards who Christ was to them. Paul is even sneakier as he injects Christ into the master and slave relationship. At first glance, it's clear that he keeps the power arrangement intact because he talks about slaves still serving your masters. He also says to the, to the masters, uh, don't, don't anger your, uh, or threaten your slaves, rather. So there's not a lot of information. The slaves are, are still obeying the master, and the master really doesn't have a, a huge responsibility other than to not threaten them. But then if you look under the surface, Paul essentially says that both parties should take the role of slave, uh, slave to Christ. And the key line here is, treat your slaves in the same way. This is what he says to the master. And that means as they treat you. Okay? So they are there sort of in submission to him and, and treat him in the same way is, is to, to all of a sudden take this power dynamic and move it a whole lot closer together. The top, uh, the patron at the top and the slave at the bottom come and they reduce the gap. And this is the redemptive arc that he is setting here. Now, let's move to the wives and husbands. As mutual submission is our guide here. Redeeming the relationship is our guide here. And we can look at what, why, what he says to the wives first. Basically, he says, submit to them and every, submit to your husband and everything. Okay, this this isn't really news. Um, 
The wives would know this already. We can look at other household codes and see that the wives are submitting and everything. And Paul doesn't really give a list of, of much as to how they should submit. It just says submit and everything. He does, however, add in verse 33 that the wife should respect her husband. This is a little odd. Women were submitting, but respect for husband, well, respect is, is an attitude. It's not an action. You can sort of demand an action. But an attitude requires some, something else. And Paul realizes this, that the, uh, the wife won't just respect the husband because it's commanded, commanded but it comes after he tells the husband to love the wife. Okay? I, I must admit, I often read ESPN.com, uh, Mary Never at Work, unless looking for a sermon illustration. But if, if you read that, from time to time, you'll, you'll go and, and see that there's a coach and a player who are having some sort of spat, or maybe a player with another player, and you hear the line, I don't respect him because he doesn't respect me. Paul recognizes that that's part of who we are. We need to sort of earn respect. Now, this isn't a biblical saying necessarily. I'm not trying to say that. But Paul honors that and says, husband loves your, love your wives, and then the following, wives respect your husbands. That line, husband loves your wives, that's the radical part of the story of this passage here. That is what you wouldn't see in Greco-Roman society. Patrons did not spend any time concerned with their wives beyond trying to get an heir. They were concerned with their social standing, though. In other words, they were concerned with themselves. Paul doesn't even outright say that being concerned with yourself is wrong. wrong. And if you look at how he talks about loving the wives, he shows that loving one's wife is also a way to love oneself. Paul is kind of sneaky in this argument. He knows what the reader needs to hear. That means maintaining that power relationship. But he knows what he needs to say, too. That is bringing Christ within that relationship. So he tells them this in a package that they can accept. Here again, he's crafty because he's redeeming the relationship without formally destroying the the structures of society. So what does all of this mean for us today in North America, a place where husbands and wives spend time together and they go on dates, fathers are more often than not part of the raising of their children, and slavery does not exist in any form that Paul would ever approve of. Now, some people read this passage as, as a manual for marriage. As a husband who loves his wife, I can say that this passage is helpful, remind, is a helpful reminder to put her first. But two problems do come up when I try to read this as a manual for a successful marriage. I'd like to uh, give you a little look at, look at our, ho- our, our home life here. We have a kitchen remodel project going on right now. There is no backsplash above our counter. That is because we are fighting about it. Amina would love to have white tiles, plain old white tiles all the way around. I say, yes, those white tiles are great. But let's try to accent the, uh, the tiles a little bit with a brown row, a very thin brown row that brings out the color of the countertops. Not too much to ask, is it? <laughs> well. We can't figure it out, so I'm just going to let you all decide for us. And, and if we can put up the slide. Uh, this is Amina's email. If you think the brown accent, write her, okay? If you think just the white tiles, you can write me. Thank you. Okay? That's good. Now, 
if I were to go to this, this passage and say, okay, Paul, tell me how to solve this fight, I could read, oh, I'm the head of that, this, this home. And I'll go tell Amina that I'm the head and you must submit to me. And that means we get that brown row in our backsplash. But Amina could go to me and say, you know what? You're supposed to love me like Christ loved the church. And he laid down his life for the church, giving up everything. So why don't you just give up that brown row of tiles? Uh, so we're kind of stuck there. Now, now, actually, the truth is, if we did it right, we would probably say it the other way around. Honey, I love you so much. I'm going to give up the brown row of tiles because Christ laid down his life for the church and gave up everything for the church. And she would say, no, 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 no. I submit to you. You're the head. Here you go, brown row. Now, you get the point. If you, if you kind of go all the way with the, this, you're coming, you're coming to loggerheads. There's a second problem, though, too. The second reason why I don't read this as a manual for my marriage, and that's because it never says Amina should love me. It says she should, should submit to me, and, and I'll tell you, I promise you, there, there, there are days when I, I, I think my life would be a lot better if she could just submit a little bit more. But... <laughs> But I married her because I knew she wasn't going to just roll over and take whatever I said. I am a sinner. In our culture today, the, the marriage relationship is, is one of the foremost relationships in a person's life. And if I were to give up on having that person who is so close to me be someone who can push me and, and, and see my sins and help me through those, then I, I've just given up a lot. So Paul... Yes, is, is writing about marriage then, but don't, don't apply that to marriage today you know, without some sort of, of reference point to, to adjust for the cultural differences. And I said all that because the good Lord and us chaplains know you want to be married, at least most of you. However, most of you are not married at this point. So is there any takeaway right now for single people, for folks who are not slaves, not masters, not uh, parents for the most part for, for you. You are children, but we're not talking about this uh, stage in life where you're getting raised uh, daily from your parents anymore. So what can these verses mean to you now as a single adult looking forward to the rest of your life? For you and for all of us, the real question is here is where do your relationships need redeeming? Where do you lord power over others? Where do you hold grudges over people who have a power position over you? All of what Paul was doing in this text was trying to make right relationships. He respected the cultural forms that they came in by not abolishing the power structures of them, but within these structures, he made the relationships be reflective of Christ in each particular person's life. Think about your relationships now and ask, where can Christ be more present? Is there somebody on your floor that upsets you and you haven't said anything to them about it and you're sort of holding on to this? Well, take this verse and, and use that as inspiration to, to go with them with, with a loving, Christ-like uh, compassion and respectfully let that person know that she hurt you. Was there a conversation with your parents or a friend where you said something and you shouldn't have? Well, redeem that relationship. Go and apologize. Do you carry a prejudice against some person? 
This passage reminds you that you are to love and treat all people as Christ loves the church. Prejudice does not live in that space. Now, I'd also like a minute just to speak to the men. This passage is a response to the problem of men lording over others. In our culture, it's far better as far as the the male-female power dynamic, but men still have the privileged position here. If you don't believe me, go and look at the supermarket magazines. I guarantee you that headline there about how to lose 10 pounds is not for you, fellas. This this image thing is, is pervasive in our society, and the bulk of it is directed to women. This passage asks you if you are treating women like Christ would. A couple of days ago, one of, my, uh, one of the seminary interns who works here at the college handed me this document, and it's from a group of seven or so guys in one of the dorms, and they recognize they are not living up to the standard of purity that God sets for, for how men should treat women. And while this, passage, this, this document isn't about this passage in particular, in particular, it's a perfect response to it. And I'd like to just say they, they've gone through and they say, I need to turn to God. Gives a few examples of why. And he shows me that my sisters are his good creation and de- deserve to be treated that way. Go on. I need my brothers. They offer a listening ear and they keep me accountable. I need my sisters. They can forgive me. They can have patience with me. Their motivation in, in writing this document and coming together as, as a group of guys is for accountability in this area. Their motivation is to be united as a body of Christ, just like Paul asks of us in this passage. Fellas, if you are not loving women as Christ loved the church, that deal with some sin in this area, I promise you, you're not alone. That's the first thing. And the second thing is I urge you to follow the lead of these guys. Get some accountability in your lives. Probably the guy sitting next to you could use this just as much as you could. This passage asks you to do that. To all of us, Paul wants us to be the body, to live in unity, to break bread and remember Christ together. Now, maybe the cultural rules were okay 2,000 years ago or even 67 years ago to treat other adults as kids But the arc of redemption that Paul starts us on is for us to constantly be looking for where we are lording power over others and bringing those relationships to a place that better reflects Christ and his kingdom. In Christ, all are equal. When his kingdom comes in full, we will finally live in complete peace with each other because Christ so loved his church that he died to take away our sins of wanting power. As you go, go knowing that Christ has ultimately redeemed you, and he has made a place for you in his kingdom where justice and righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit will reign. Look to his redemptive love as your guide in all your relationships while we wait for the day when we can all sit at the table together and celebrate the Feast of the Lamb. Amen.